0: Okay, we're going to start here on the Mishnah on the bottom of Chetamudbet. We're continuing with the theme of EIN bain. Here the Mishnah talks about EIN BEIN SEPARIM L'TEFILINU MUZUZOT. There's no difference between sfarim here as she mentions Tanakh, TORAH NEVIM UKTUVIM, L'TEFILINU MUZUZOT, ELA SHESEPARIM NICHTAVIM B'CHO LASHON, that Tanakh can be written in any language, UTEFILINU MUZUZOT EINAN NICHTAVOT ELA ASHURIT. They can only be written in tavashurit shurit. they can only be written with Hebrew. Rabbi Shimon even with regards to the Tanakh, they only allowed the additional language besides Hebrew to be Greek. Again, the Gemara will discuss all of these issues. So now the Gemara, as it's done in each one of these Mishnayot, says the inference from this Mishnah is, They agree that, number one, the Tophran, the requirement to, when they stitch them to use, Gidim, that both are the same. In addition to that, with regards to Yadaim, all of these have a Din Yadaim, they're all considered to be Kitveh kodesh. and Tefillin and have that same Din, in order that they don't store these items together with the Chuma. So that would be equal. Now, with regards to a safer Torah and uh, the stitching up, Rashi tells us that the Gemara in Makot says that that there's a Machloket if you used flax to stitch up the Sefer Torah, whether that is kasher or not, this Mishnah implies that the halacha would be that it is pasul that you have to use gidin, like you have to do that by Tefillin and Mizuzot, so too you have to do that by the Sefer Torah. Even though our practice today in terms of the cloth of Tefillin and the klaf of Mizuzot is that we don't stitch anything together, we write them together, but they are wrapped up and they are used to stitch up the Tefillin themselves, we use Gidim. Now Viriminu mikra Shikadvo Tagum Mikra. If you have something that's written in Hebrew and instead you wrote it in Aramaic or something that's Aramaic and you wrote it in Hebrew. or if you use this older version of Diktav, which they call from Averinar, which is a more cursive type of script, that is not considered to be a kitveh kodesh. The siman for that is that it's not metameh adaim, which means it doesn't have a status of kitveh kodesh. Ad, ala sefer ubdayo. It has to have all of these three things, which is ketav shurit, which is the lettering that we use in our Sifrei Torah. It has to be ala sefer, it's rewritten on klaf and ubdio, and with the ink that qualifies to be ink, that's kasher for writing. But you see here that there's a limitation with regards to language to Ktava shurit, whereas our Mishnah indicates that it's Farim Nichtvim So that's the Mars asking hat what do you deal with this braito? So Amarova, Rova says kan be Kan be gofin shalahan. is like the modern day word it's used to mean a font. So it depends which font you're using. If you're using our font, meaning if you're using a Hebrew font, then it's fine. If you're using the language in which you are writing, if you're using their fonts, using their letter creation, then it's problematic. So basically what Rov is suggesting here is that if you transliterated the words by using Hebrew lettering, that would be fine. The problem is if you use the foreign language lettering along with their wording, that would be problematic. So now what are you suggesting? That the Breita is speaking about a case when you wrote it in their font. So my mikra shekatavo targum vitargum shakatavo mikra. Then what is the problem here that they switched the way that they wrote it? Instead of writing it in Hebrew, they wrote it in Aramaic. Or Aramaic they written it in Hebrew, mikra mikra. Even if you have a Pasuk that's supposed to be in Hebrew and you wrote it in Hebrew just using the characters, say for instance you used English characters, transliterating them into what the Pasuk should say. That would be problematic. nami. That would also be problematic. Forget about switching what's supposed to be there in the pasuk. Even if you wrote the appropriate pasuk, you would have a problem. Because you would be missing one of the fundamental factors, which is asurit. Because here you'd be writing it in their characters, in the foreign language characters, and that would not qualify. Ella, so Bai offers an alternative solution to the problem, which is lokasha. Hara Ha, Rabbi Shimon bin Gamliel. and Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, who argued in our Mishnah, that's the difference. Rabbanan said any language is fine. Rabbi Shimon bin Gamliel limited it to Greek. Where it says, wait a minute, e Rabbi Shimon haika yivanit. That doesn't work as a differentiation between our Mishnah and the Breitta, because if Rabbi Shimon Gamleo is the author of the Breitta, he should have permitted Greek. The Breitta doesn't allow any language switches. So where it says, el lo kan bis farim, kan bit so by Tefillin and Mizuzot, there's a demand that it's written in shurit, that it's written in Hebrew. Whereas by the Sfarim, the others, there is no such demand. So the Gemara says, Tefillin and Mizuzot, my time. Why do Tefillin and have this limitation? Mishum <b-khtibahu> Vehayu. Because the Parshiot Hashma are found in Tefillin and And in those Parshiot, it has the word v'hayu, behaviatan Yehu. They have to be exactly the way that they are written. Just the way that they are found in the Torah, that's the way they have to be found in the Tefillin and in the Mizuzot. So that's a great solution. Now we're dividing up and saying depends what you're speaking about. If you're talking about svarim, that's what our Mishnah discusses as being permitted to write b'chol Lashon. The B'rightah is not dealing with svarim; They're dealing with Tefillin and Mizuzot, which our Mishnah agrees can't be written in any other Lashon. Where it says that's a little bit of a problem because the B'rightah says, what are you going to do with the language differential that's there? It says, my Targum, Shekatavo Mikra, Ikah. It says, what Targum do you have that you're translating into Hebrew? So, Bishlamo Torah, if you're speaking about the Torah, Ikah Yergar Sa'aduta. By the case of Yaakov and Lavan, after Yaakov runs away and Lavan chases him down, and then they somehow come to terms with each other, and then they have a little bit of a Brit or covenant between them. There they have what's called Galaid, according to Yaakov in Hebrew it's called Yigar Sa'aduta, which is the translation of Galaid into Aramaic. But the Torah notes that in the Pasuk that it's called Yigar Sa'aduta. So there's Aramaic that could be translated into Hebrew. And that's what the B'rightuk be referencing if it's speaking about the Torah. In the Parshiot that fit into the Tfilin, and the Parshiot that go into the Mizuza, none of them have Targum in them. We know what those Parshiot are. There's not a word of Targum in them. So then what's the B'rightuk referring to? Uh, look, that the Megillah has a requirement that it be written in Gtav Ashuri, but the other Sfarim don't have that requirement. So the Gmar says, Megillah, my time oh. What's well, the reason that the Megillah has this requirement? It says that it was written, Gtavam, written in the specific Tav. Although the Argot Ronschenberg changes it to uchizmanam, but the Gtavam tells you that there's a specific requirement that it be written in that language, Gtavam. Naktab is the k'tav ashurit. so there's a demand that the Megillah be written in k'tav Ashurit, whereas the other Sfarim don't have that requirement that they're written in Ashurit. Those who would ask over here, who's then the author of the Brayta? Is the author of the Brayta the Chachamim or Rabbi Shimon Gamliel? He says it doesn't work out to either of them because if it's the Rabbonon, then the Brayta should not just have mentioned Megillah; it should have also mentioned Tfilin and Mizuzot. And if it's Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, then even he permits the Megillah to be written in Greek. So which opinion is it? So in the end, Tosfud says he thinks that Rabbi Shimon Gamliel is the author of the B'raita, and that the fact that Megillah can be written in Yavanit is an, actually an opinion of the Amurim coming up. But according to Tosafot, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel over here couldn't agree that the Megillah can only be written in Asherit because of Kichtabam. And he would agree by Megillah there was no exception. The exception is by the other items that be written in Greek and therefore, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel is the author here, because he believes Philemon and could be written in Greek, These the other him could be written in Greek. The only thing he thinks that can't be written in Greek is the Megillah. And so he'll be the author of this B'raita that says, you have to write it, and that's referencing the Megillah according to Rabbi Shimon Gamliel. So then Gemara says again, if the requirement is here that the Megillah has the limitation, because it has to be shonam. it has to be written in the appropriate language, then where in the Megillah do you have something that is Aramaic that you could possibly mistranslate into Hebrew? Amar of Popo, is a possibility is Vinishma Pitgam HaMelech. The word Pitgam, even though now in modern Hebrew it is a Hebrew word, but it originally came from Aramaic The Pitgam, which is a saying that was Aramaic word that could be translated into Hebrew. Rav Nachman Hanashim yitnu yikar so instead of using the word kavod, which is Hebrew, they use yakar, which again, they view as an Aramaic version of what would have been written there. And so the word yakar, which means to give kavod, the balehem, that word yakar is written in Aramaic, and that could be mistranslated into Hebrew. So therefore, if that's the case, the differentiation that we would suggest here is that the milat Gilah has a requirement to be written only biktav ashurit. And that's why the breiter says mikra katavot, targum targum shakatavot mikra is problematic. And ktabivri you need ktaba shurit sefer b'diyol. Those are the requirements in Megillah based on the fact that it says Kihtavam. The other sferim which Rashi claims over here is neviim k'tuvim. Over there you can write them b'cholas and that's what our Mishnah is referencing. Now we have another option which is Ravashi Amar ki tanya that Breit is talking about Sharim, via Rabbi and the author of the position is Rabbi Huda. Here it's speaking about the Neviim and and it's Rabbi Huda is that position. Tanya, Tfilenu Mizuzot, enichtavim Tavim Shurit. everybody agrees has to be written in Shurit. Rabbi Tainu Hituru obviously, this Rabbi over here is referring to Rabbi Shimon Gamliel of our Mishnah, but the Rabbi say that you can use Greek. Vakti Vehayu. Wait a minute, how could you say that? It says vihayu, which we referenced before and Tsilinimizuz, which say Bahab Hey, they have to be exactly the way they are found in the Torah. Don't write that it's Tfilinimizot, but rather this is what you should say. Svarim nichtabim hitiru Yivanit. So the Tanakama says that svarim can be written in any language. Rabutenu, again must be Rabbi Shubin Gamliel says you can only do it in Greek. Hitiru, the Tanakama Wait, the fact that he's saying he's Matir Yevanit makes it sound like the Tanakhama did not agree with that. The Tanakhama said any language is fine. So why is it saying that he's hitir? Ella, Ama Raboteinu lohu tiru devu Ela Yivanit. Raboteinu only permitted that you write it in Greek. So far, that's pretty straightforward. Now, Vitanyo, we have a bright Tam Rab Even when the rabbis permitted one to use Greek, lo tiru is safer Torah. That's only with regards to a Sefer Torah. Omishomah um, said the Talmay Melech, And only because of the King Talmay. So that's the reason that he permitted it over here is for a story that we're going to talk about in a second. But they only permitted it because of this incident. But it's limited to the Sefer Torah. So now, if we do that, now Rabbi Huda can become the author of our Breito. Because the Breito says that you can't write it in any language except Ashurit. Now, Rabbi Yehuda over here says he limits the dispensation to write in Greek to a Sefer Torah. As opposed to Rabbi or Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, who says that you can write all the Sfarim in Yuvanit. He says it's only limited to Sefer Torah. So then what you're going to suggest over here is that Breitah is speaking about Shar Sfarim, Svarim meaning Nevi'im and Tuvim. So the author of the Breitah is Rabbi Yehuda, speaking about Nevi'im ik Tuvim. And he's the one who says that there's no permission to write in any language except Ashurit. Our, our Mishnah is speaking about Sfarim that you can write which is Sefer Torah I mean, that the Sefer Torah you can write even in Greek according to Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, and according to the Chachamim or the Tanakama over here you can write any of the Sfarim in any language so that's how we'll differentiate between our Mishnah which is that the Mishnah is obviously not the position of Rabbi Yehuda but the bright will be the position of Rabbi Yehuda and that's the way Rabbi Ashi solves the problem so over here we went through a number of iterations in order to reconcile between the Brita and our Mishnah. In the final stage, the Gemara reconciled between the two without having it be different authors by saying, Lokasha, Kan Migila Kan bi-svarim. That by Migila there's this limitation of writing an Ashurit, Kan or the other Svarim. There isn't such a limitation. Ravashi changes it, he gives an alternative which is the differentiation that has to do with authorship. The Brita is authored by Rabbi Yehuda with regards to Sharsvarim, and therefore it's not permitted, whereas the Mishnah is not authored by Rabbi to it's authored by those opinions that do permit you to write in other languages. Now the Gemara is going to discuss, what is this incident with Talmai HaMelech, which is otherwise known as the Septuagint, which is, Brought in 72 batim. Put him into 72 different secluded places. He doesn't tell him why he is secluding them, sequestering them. And he goes into each one individually. I want you guys to write down the Torah of your master Moshe. Meaning that I want you to translate the Torah into Greek. I want to be able to read the Torah. So I want to translate it into Greek. You know, this is like the prisoners' dilemma because in this instance, each one of them wants to make changes here, but they risk by making a change that they're going to get caught because they don't know if the other people are going to make the same change. Here, Akados Boruchu puts into each one of them that they're going to make these changes, and therefore they have a consistency across the board in these changes inside of the Septuagint, when they translated it into Greek. And here the Gemara is going to give us the description of these items that are that they made changes in. All the things that they made changes in are psukim that are somewhat controversial, in the sense that they're controversial because the interpretation of the pasuk on a simple level looks problematic. And therefore we have Midrashei Chazal that help us to explain or understand the pasuk. But they didn't want to do that. As Rashi says, me is not interested in Midrashay Chazal, or how Chazal explained the Pasuk, he's just going to read it, and it's going to sound like it's problematic. So they rectified the Psukim in order to either reconcile problems in the psukim or to make it so it doesn't look like there are multiple gods, and so on and so forth. They made these changes in order to ease the reading, without having to have the Midrashay Chazal come in. The only thing that's interesting over here, is that, in terms of Rabbi Hud's statement, that the Lohi Turel Sefer Torah mishum Ma'sid, the Talmah he says, because of Ptolemy, the Septuagint, in terms of his translation into Greek, actually translates the entire Tanakh, not just the Torah portion of it. But here, Gemara seems to indicate that it was only about the Torah portion of it. Maybe it happened in stages. I'm not sure exactly, historically, how that reconciles with the history of the Septuagint. Now, the Gemara explains, what are the Sukim that they changed? It says, in the beginning of the Torah, instead of writing Breshit Bara Lukim, they changed it around to write Elukim bara Breshit. They put God's name up first. Rashi says because otherwise you would have thought Breshit is the name of a God. And then it would say Breshit bara Elukim. That Breshit created God. So that there was like a chain of gods and one God created the next God. Because that's how you might have read it. So they changed the placement of Breshit in order so you can't make the mistake. And they said Elukim bara Breshit, That God created in the beginning. That's one explanation. Tosafot says that it was a Greek practice to always mention God's name first in the beginning of the book or the beginning of the sentence. Therefore, when they said they would automatically assume that Breshit was a reference to God. and Therefore, it would be Breshit Beralukim that Breshit created Elukim. And Again, it would imply that there are multiple gods out there. Now, the next psukim are for later on in creation. The pasuk that's problematic is Adam That's what the Pasuk says. The is written in the plural form with a Naase, let us create man in our image. So that is in the plural form, which is problematic. Chazal already addressed that in the case there that Hashem was nimlach that Hashem checked in with his Malachim, with the parts, his all of his entourage when he did this. Now, when it comes to the creation, that's what the midrash says. It says that God, that only in a singular form was man created. So again, in the initial stages, it's written in plural, but in the actual carrying out of the creation of man, it's written in a singular form, and that's what the Midrash says, that, the answer to the problem in the previous pasuk is right next to it, but it says that man is created in the singular form. So then why does it write it in the plural form? There in the Midrash Chazal is to teach us that when it comes to an issue like this, you should always take counsel with everybody else. It's to teach you derech eretz. So here the Torah took a risk, even though it could be misunderstood, but it felt that it was more important for teaching one derech eretz rather than having people be exactly on target with reading the Torah or maybe misunderstanding the Torah. So that's always an interesting thing, but the Midrash is telling us that when it comes to a choice between Derech Eretz and Torah, Derech Eretz takes precedence over here. And therefore the Torah writes it as, Naseh Adam Bitzelmenu U But again, Ptolemy is not interested in the Midrash Chazal. So they amended it to read, E'eseh Adam Bitzelem U They turned it into the singular, so it looks like there's only one God in a sense, that there's no question as to the singular creation of man. The next basuk that they amended was, Vayichal, by, according to Baruch, says, Vayichal by and by Shvi. So it makes it sound like God finished up his work on the seventh day. Vayichal Rashi already discusses this issue in terms of finishing up on the seventh day. One of the two possibilities is either that he really finished on the sixth day, but because Hashem could do it exactly to the moment for people on earth, it looks like he finished on the seventh day. The other answer that Rashi brings from Midrash Hazal is that Olam menucha, what was missing in the world? There was rest. And that words what it means b'yom that God finished creation on the seventh day by creating rest on the seventh day. But again, Ptolemy is not interested in these Midrash Hazal. Therefore they changed or amended it to read b'yom that God finished all his work on the sixth day b'yom and then he rested on the seventh day. The next pasuk that they amend is Zacharuni Baram. So he, they changed it to Zacharuni Keva Velo Kata That it says that God created a male and a female, but not Baram, that he created them in plural. So the difference being between the Midrash Chazal and what was expected here, whether God created Zacharuni Keva separate entities, or did Hashem create one entity with two faces to it? And so that would depend on whether it's written Zacharuni Keva Bira'o, or whether it's zahar Bira'am. And so they changed it to Bira'o in order to avoid that problem of the question of how God created man and woman. Because if it was written, look, they said, Dimash Gufim Barakol Echad Zachar Keva because when it's written in plural, it sounds like Zachary Nekeva Bira'am. And he created each one of them, Zachar and Keva because it's written in plural. So therefore he said in the end, Bira'o, Nivra Adam Bishnei the man was created with one, man, one unit with two faces to Zachar Nekeva. So again, in order to accord with Hazel's understanding of that Pazuk, they changed the language so that it would be clear that that's the understanding. The next one they amend is with regards to Migdal Bavel. By Migdal Bavel, you have the same problem that you had by the creation of man, which is by, uh, by the case of Migdal Bavel, it says, God says, let us go down and mix up their language in order to prevent them or stopping them from building Migdal Bavel. So they amended to read in the singular again, say, Erdah shams fatam, in order that there won't be any confusion. It was God alone who did it. There wasn't anybody else involved. And again, Chazal say the same thing, that they say by the creation of man, which is that the plural is because God took counsel with his minions, with his entourage, and even though it wasn't necessary, that is kavod or derech and again it teaches us that idea of derech The next case where they made an ammendation, again another problematic pasuk is v'ititzchak tsara b'kirba. That Sarah laughed when Hashem gives news to Avram and Sarah about the fact that they're going to have a child. Both of them react the same way. Abraham laughs, and so does Sarah. Sarah laughs, but Hashem only gets upset at Sarah, not at Abraham. The way the Targum there deals with it is depending on what type of laughter it was. He says by Abraham, he translates the word laughter there as a chedva, laughter of happiness. Whereas by Sarai, he translates laughter as more of a laughter of disbelief. And that's why Hashem only takes issue with Sarah and not with Abraham. But again, if you read it on the surface, it looks like God had got upset at Sarai, even though Abraham had done the exact same thing. So then, what do they amend it to? They amended to read sarah that Sarah. Why did Sarah get affected, or why was Sarah punished over here? Is because she did it bikirba. She did it not internally, but She spoke to her relatives about it, and that's why it was different than Abraham. Abraham kept it private, whereas Sarah made it into a public issue, and that's why she was chastised by Hashem. All right. The next indentation they made is in the brachot of Yaakov to Shimon and Levi, and over there it says ki ba'apam harguish tzonam ikru shor. So they, there it says that in their anger they killed someone, uber tzonam akru shor, and in their will they uprooted the shore. So they amended that to write ki ba'apam hargu shor akru that in their anger they killed the shore, they updid or overturned the trough. So as Rashi explains over here, they didn't want it to look like Shimon and Levi, or that Ayaka was accusing Shimon and Levi of being murderers, because that's what it sounds like, now he knows about the story, there is a story earlier in Breshit, which they didn't amend, which is the story of Shechem, so Ptolemy reading that would already known the story in Shechem, and know that Shimon and Levi acted there, and killed the people of Shechem, but, reading that, you would say they did it out of either self-defense, or they did it out of justice in order to kill them. Yaakov's chastisement says, ki babkam ish in the singular form, which makes it sound like he's holding them culpable for a murder of a single individual, Some either some other event, or even within Shechem, there's somebody there that maybe they shouldn't have killed, that they did kill. So in order to avoid that possible misunderstanding about how Yaakov is speaking to Shimon and Levi and his chastisement of them, to not make it look like they are murderers, they amended to read, ki b'apam argushor, akru avus. Rashi says, because Yaakov viewed the people of Shechem, ki that's how uh, the Ramban al-Torah, in speaking about the people of Shechem, he says, ki damam Yaakov. that it can't be that Yaakov objected to Shimon and Levi, killing the people of Shechem, because their blood is like the blood of a Behimah, I mean, that, that wasn't the reason why he was upset at them. And then Rampan goes on to explain why he was upset about them. But here, Rashi says, are justifying the translation, ki b'apam to reference the people of Shem because he looked at them like be'emot. And as Tazavad says later on, even when they made changes, they wanted to keep it close to the truth or within the truth. And that's what a ki b'apam is true, that that's, they viewed Shem in that way. And therefore, what's being said in the translation is not incorrect. It may not be the clearest, but it is still not incorrect because it's conveying a message that was true about how Yaakov felt about the Bnei Shechem. Okay, Next, puzzle next they amended is when Moshe travels to Mitzrayim with his family. It says, There it says, He put them on a donkey. Over here they amended it to read, He put them onto a transporter. Now, as Rashi says over here, a transporter must have been that he put him on a camel or a horse. They didn't want, told me to say, look, your great leader Moshe didn't have a camel, didn't have a horse. He had to put his family on a donkey. So in order to prevent that slight and Moshe's character, possibly, they translated it as, which is true. But they put him on a people mover. People mover here happened to be a chamor, but they left it ambiguous in order that he wouldn't know that. The next problem is a pasuk that is found in Sefer Shmalt, but it's also problematic in terms of B'rit ben Atarim. It says, And the pasuk continues, and The time that ben Yisrael spent in Mitzrayim is 400 years. So obviously, it's obvious to anyone who reads Sefer Shmalt that they didn't spend 400 years in Mitzrayim, because if you look at the ages of Moshe, his father, his grandfather, and Levi, who came down to Mitzrayim, even if you had all of their ages together, you're still not going to get to 400. And as Rashi points out, even if there clearly is overlap between them in their ages. And so we know for certain that they weren't there for 400 years. So what did they do? They made an emendation to make it fit with what Chazal says, which is, Moshah Solashu shalashu yeshvu b'nitzrayim, u'b'shara ratzot. Time they spelled it Mitzrayim in other lands were 400 years. Other lands is... The promise in Beit Zaracha be'Eretz So, first one requirement is Ger, that you be a stranger in the land, and number two is Zaracha. Then, when you have offspring, so the count only starts from the birth of Yitzchak, and from the birth of Yitzchak until Yitziat Mitzrayim, they spend four hundred years in a land or in strangers' a land that's not theirs. Because at the time of the birth of Yitzchak, Avram is found in Eretz Plishtim as Rashi says, but she was a ger in Eretz B'lishtim. And from the time that Yitzchak is born until the time that Yaakov is born is 60 years. Yitzchak is 60 years old when Yaakov is born. And Yaakov, when he goes down to Mitzrayim, is a 130 years old. So that's 190 years. You take 400 minus 190, that leaves the 210 years that Ben are found in Mitzrayim. That's how they reconcile to get the 400 years. There's another pasuk that says 430 years That extra, those extra 30 years are from the time of Brit bin Atarim till the time of the birth of Yitzchak. So they amended it to write Ubashar in order to deal with that problem. The next one comes from in the end of Pashat Mishpatim and Perchav Dawit where there is a second description of the Mamad Har Sinai. Over there it says, Vaishlachet Naarei bin Yisrael. Says that they sent the youngest, the young ones. Naarei over there sounds like the young ones to bring the Korbanot to act as the koanim. And so they thought that that might be offensive or considered offensive to tell me that they were, why were they using Ne'arim? Why were they using these youngsters to do the avodah? Why were they using people of kavod? So they amended it to read, Vaishlach et b'nei Yisrael. So they used Zatutei as Rashi says, Lashon Chashivut. So that it's a language of stature or people of stature. Now, the way the Pasuk reads there in Mishpatim, it says, and then later on it says that God does not hit or harm the Atzilei B'nei Yisrael. So later on it's translated as Atsile. and then the Pasuk here they translated it similarly So they changed it from instead of being Narei one time and atzile the second time they translated it to be zatute and Zatute. what says why don't they just translate it as Atzilei both times. Atzilei means the Ones of kavod, people of position. So why don't you just simply change the first one to atzile, and then it would be consistent in the pasuk. So tell us what here brings up the same thing we just mentioned before is that even though they were changing things, they still wanted to be true. And so since zatute has two meanings to it, it is both lashon chashivut, as well as a lashon hashpala, being knocked down or small. So it can reference both Nareem as well as people that are Chashuvim. So they put in a word, again, that was somewhat ambiguous in order that we would straddle the truth but not give the impression of what the word was really, that really was there, but give a different impression. Right, so the next Pasuk that they amend is when Moshe Rabbeinu speaks in the rebellion of Korach, it says, Lo achamor nasati. When he davens to Hashem in order to take on the Adad Korach, that he should have them swallowed up by the earth, he says, Lo I didn't take a single chamor from them. I didn't take anything from them. Now Moshe is basically saying that I've taken nothing from the people. They have nothing to complain about. I've done nothing wrong. But Rashi points out here that someone can get the impression, I didn't take any chamor, but I took something else. So therefore they changed the translation from chamor to chemed. I didn't take a single thing of theirs, a single desire of theirs. So, therefore, it's a broader term that encompasses more than simply a donkey's that he didn't take. He didn't take anything. So, again, that's the gist of what Moshe said. They just clarified it by amending the language. So, then, the next pasuk they bring is from Dvarim. Again, these are Sukim and Dvarim where Midrashei Chazal already tell us, we know that the pasuk is somewhat problematic because Chazal already trying to explain to us the pasuk. And over there it says, maybe you're going to look up to the heavens, you're going to see the sun, the moon, the stars, all the constellations, and you're going to go off the path, and you're going to bow down to them, and you're going to worship them, that Hashem had designated or set aside for the rest of the nations, so from there it sounds like, what does it mean that he designated, that he put it aside? me? sounds like that Ben-Noach is mutar to do this. I designated these for the Bnei-Noach and they can go ahead and do it. It's just you who are restricted not to act like this. But I separated them. I designated or I segregated these for the other nations implying that they can worship at Avodah Zarah. So the way Chazal explained it there, the Mitros Chazal says, no, not that I separated for them to worship, but rather I separated out for them to be punished by. So I let them follow the constellations, get themselves into trouble, so that they can be punished, and be wiped out. So here they amended it to read, Asher Chalak Hashem Lokecha Otam, Not that He segregated them, for them to bow down to, but now they define exactly what they segregated them for, L'Hayir, in order to give light to the other nations. Meaning that they'll function for the other nations, but not that they will... Not that they are allowed to bow down to them. Okay, now the next one. Again, another one where there's a Midrash Chazal and it says, So you'll go off and worship other gods, Asher Lotziviti, that I never commanded. So from the Pashtura Pasuk, it sounds like I didn't command these other gods, as if I didn't create these other gods. They exist outside of me. I'm not in control of them. That's the Pashtura Pasuk. But way Chazal say, is that I didn't command for you to worship them. And that's what they added to the Pasuk. It says, So they make it clear. What's the thing that I didn't command? I didn't command you to worship them. So by adding in the word, it clarifies the Pasuk. Then in addition to that, they changed in terms of the non-kosher animals. It mentions instead of the Arnevet, the rabbits that's mentioned as one of the non kosher animals, they amended that. It says et the one with the short legs. Ve'lo and they didn't write Why not? tamai arnevet shema, because Tamai's wife, the queen's name was Arnevet, and they thought they're playing games with me. They're making fun of me. They put my wife's name in the Torah in the non kosher animals. So, to avoid any misunderstanding or any suspicion, they changed the Arnevit to Tzirat Haraglaim in order that it wouldn't be Arnevit. The Midrash, the Rabbi Vega says the Midrash in Pashach Mini actually says it was his mother's name, not his wife's name. But either way, he might find it offensive that this was listed in the non kosh animals, the Arnevit. Therefore, they translated it into Tzirat Haraglaim. All right, now. We move on to the latter part of the Mishnah, which is Rabbi Shimon Gamliel Mer Af Pisfarim Leitiro Shechdevu Eli Even the Sfarim they only permitted Greek. So Amar Amaribel Rabbi Yochanan Alocha The Alocha is like Rabbi Shimon Gamliel. And now the obvious question is, why is Greek different than any other language? So I'm Rabbi Yochanan, my time with Rabbi Shimon Gamliel. What's the reasoning behind Rabbi Shimon Gamliel's opinion? Amar Kra. The pasuk says, by Noach Yaf Telukim the Yefet Vishkon Bolei that Hashem will grant the beauty to Yephet, and they will dwell in the tents of shame. Now the tents of shame refer to the Bate Midrash, the Bate Kinesiot, they refer to the Torah. So how is Yafta look in the Yephet? How is the beauty of Yephet found in the Olay Shame? So that's it. The words, or the language of Yephet will be found in Ole Shame. will be found in the houses of shame, meaning that they will be in the Bate Midrash, the Bate Knessiot, because there's permission to write the Sfarim in Greek. When it says, wait a minute, Yefet has numerous children. So who says that Yavan is one of them? But not all of them. You could have others like Veima, Gomer, Oma Other children of Yefet could also be the ones that it's speaking about. When it says, The beauty, the most beautiful things of Yefet will be in Shem. So the language that's most beautiful, that's the way Rashi describes it, It's the nicest, I don't know whether he's means in the script or in the language itself, it's the most beautiful of all the languages of those languages that descend from Yefet, and therefore that's the one that's chosen because it's talking about it's talking about the most beautiful. And so the beauty is what should be in Olay Hashem, and that beauty is the language of Greek. We'll get into, uh, later on in the parak. we'll discuss this change in language a little more about the ability to read in other languages. Over here, the Gemara just debated about writing them in other languages, and we have that debate whether Greek is permitted or other languages are permitted. And then within the Gemara, we saw other opinions as to what extent. That, obviously, Teflonimus' result is no. And then we saw one possibility of differentiating between the Megillah and other Sfarim, And then we also saw the possibility of differentiating between the... Torah and other Svarim. Alright, now in the next Mishnah. Uh, the next Mishnah is again a continuation of Ein Bein, which is Ein Bein Kohen Meshuach Vishemene Mishcha, the Bigadim. There's no difference between a Kohen Gadol who's anointed with the Shemen Mishcha versus a Kohen Gadol that assumes his position by wearing the eighth Bigadim of the Kohen Gadol. That is from the time of Yoshioa, Melech and onward, they were Gonez, the Shemen Mishcha. And by being gones, the Shem of Mishcha. After that, person became a kohen gadol by wearing the eight bigadim of a kohen gadol. What's the difference between a kohen gadol that ascends to the position of kohen gadol after being anointed versus a kohen gadol that ascends to his position by simply working in the eight bigadim of the kohen gadol? Ella, the one difference between him is parabala mitzvot. Now the parabala mitzvot here is not the parhelam dover Tzibur, which is that if the entire tzibur sins, because and by accident on the p the psak of beit din they had to bring a special par, helam dover show mitzvot, but it's actually talking about the Kohen agadol himself, that he, if he gives a p'sak, and he paskins based on his p'sak, and he goes and does something wrong, there's what's called the par Kohen Mashiach, and that's what it's referring to over here, because over there it says, Im HaKohen HaMashiach Yechetad Hashmat so there the description of the Kohen Gadol in that case is a Kohen mashiach Yechetad Hashmat so there's a clear definition of Kohen being the Kohen HaMashiach, the one who's Mashuach v'Shem mishcha. So that Kurban only applies to a Kohen Gadol that was anointed, not to a Kohen Gadol who came to his position through wearing the eight bigadim. Eim ben Kohen the Kohen Sha'var. There's no difference between an active Kohen Gadol to a Kohen Sha'var, meaning a Kohen Gadol who is at a service. The par that's brought on Yom Kippur, because you can only bring one par on Yom Kippur, the power of the Kohen Gadol. Asirita Ifa is the Minchat Chavitin that is brought Machatzitaba Boker, Machatzitaba Erev, by the Kohen Gadol on each day. That can only be brought by the active Kohen Gadol, not by the Kohen Gadol that's not active. Ha, the Indian par Yom Kippurim the Asirita Ifa As far as the Kohen Gadol in the first part of our Mishnah, which is the one, whether the Going Gadol was anointed through the Shemin Mishcha, or whether he came to be the Going Gadol because he wore the eight bigadim. He's a full-fledged Going Gadol, and he can serve to bring the para and Yom Kippur as the Kapar of the Going Gadol, and he brings the minchat rabidin every day. Says, Matnit and says, the local Rabbi Meir. Our mission is clearly not like Rabbi Meir. Di Rabbi Meir, hatan, we have a bright that says, miru bigadim, mevi vi para baal kolam mitzvot. Rabbi Meir. The Rabbi Meir says that as far as the Merubem Gadim, he can bring the Parabah Mitzvot. But the Khamim say So my time with Rabbi Meir. What's the reasoning behind Rabbi Meir? The Tanya, Mashiach. It's pretty clear that by the power of the Goyin Gadol, it says in Ha Goyin So it sounds like Mashiach means the that one that is anointed with the oil. He says, you're right, Mashiach means Eliel Mashuach Vashemin. Ha Mishcha, Miruba, Begadim, I mean, I mean, say, Begadim, Mishcha, Miruba Begadim. The one who is wearing the clothing doesn't have anointing through the oil, but simply are wearing the eight clothing of the garments of the coin Gadol, meaning, Ha hamashiach. The extra hay comes and adds in that not only is it a coin Ha Mashiach, which is Mashuach Vashemin Mishcha, but also a coin Miruba Begadim. Umar says, okay, Ba Mayukim, now you establish a Mishnah as the local Rabbi Meir is not like Rabbi Meir. What are you going to do with the latter half of the Mishnah? Now they're equal for anything else At on the Rabbi Meir. That follows the position of Rabbi Meir. Because here we're talking about a case where the Kohen Gadol for whatever reason fell ill or cannot do the avoda, So they bring in the backup Kohen Gadol. So now the backup Kohen Gadol once he's worked as the Kohen Gadol he and the original Kadol, Kohen Gadol have the same status. When the original Kohen Gadol comes back into service, they're both on the same level with the exception of these two items, which is that he can't bring a par on Yom Kippur, because you only not to bring one par kipper on Yom Kippur for the Kohen Gadol. And number two is that he doesn't bring the Minchat Chavitin every day. The Kohen Gadol's is active does. The one who served as a replacement for a short period of time does not. But then what is the status of the Kohen Gadol who came in as a replacement and then goes back afterwards, his original Kohen Gadol comes back, and now he is retired from the position. What happens now? Not retired from age, but retired because the original came back. So you have Kohen Gadol A, who's in service. Something happens, and they have to bring up backup Kohen, Kohen Gadol B, into to serve in the interim. Then Kohen Gadol A comes back into service. What do you do with Kohen Gadol B? So that we had a machloket in the Gemara in Yoma, and here the Gemara brings it down here. Tatanya, ira psul, something happened to the Kohen Gadol, and they point someone in his place, and instead, when, when the original Kohen Gadol is well enough, or whatever was stopping him from serving, now is able to serve, the mayor says, the one who came in as the replacement, Kohen Gadol B, who replaced for a short period of time, remains with the status of a Kohen Gadol, and he's a full-fledged Kohen Gadol, he wears the eighth bigadim, he does everything like a Kohen Gadol, with the exception of the items mentioned in our Mishnah. That's Rabbi, opinion. Rabbi Yossi Omer, the original one comes back and becomes the Kohen Gadol when he's ra'oi again to be the Kohen Gadot. The replacement Kohen Gadol, Kohen Gadol B, can't be a Kohen Gadol and can't be a Kohen Gadot. The Gemara Neumah explains on this, but basically says, he can't be a Kohen Gadot because Malim Bikodesh V'ein Moridin. He was elevated in status. he can't go back to his old status of being just a regular coin. He can't be the coin gadol because either it's going to lead to jealousy with the original Kohen Gadol or it's going to cause problems of who's really in charge. I mean that there's issues with him being a coin Gadol. There's only one coin Gadol. So he becomes basically in no man's land. He's now left, not as a coin Gadol, not as a Kohen joke. he basically becomes invalid from both perspectives. He can't be a coin and, can't be a coin Gadol. he's basically stuck. So now, our Mishnah is clearly authored by Rabbi Meir and not Rabbi Yose, because the latter half of the Mishnah says, Ein, Bain, Kohen, Mishamesh, Kohen, Shavar. There's no difference between an active Kohen and a Kohen who was taken out of service of the par, yom Kibrim, Vasari, Taifa, these two items. Otherwise, they are equal, and the replacement Kohen Gadol, Kohen Gadol B, continues serves as a Kohen Gadol. That's like Rabbi Meir in the bright, not like Rabbi Yose. So now you're telling me the first half of the Mishnah is not like Rabbi Meir, and the second half of the Mishnah is like Rabbi Meir. That's a problem. So Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Yosef ben Ula mitzipori. Here, Rabbi Psoul begoing gadol. There was a problem with the going gadol. Minu tahtav. They appointed him to replace them. Obama said if Nechamim, after the original going gadol came back, they wanted to know what the status of this individual was. Nechamim said, Ramro, Rishon chazer labruto. The original going gadol comes back into service. Sheni enuroi elok going gadol, velok going ejot. Similar to this is obviously Rabbi Yosef who's bringing this support to his position that the replacement Kohen kohen Gadol B can't go back to be an old Kohen Kediot, and it can't be a Kohen Gadol Mishum Eva, because of the problem of jealousy or altercations between him and the other Kohen Gadol. Kohen Gadol Mishum Malamikodesh V'loh By Kohen Gadol you can't do it, because you elevate your Kedushah, you don't take down kedusha. So if he was already elevated to Kohen Gadol, he can't now step down to be the Kohen Hediot. So Gemara answers, with Rabbi Meir. Is that the possibility that the beginning is the rabbonon not like Rabbi Meir? And the Seifa is like Rabbi Meir? So I'm Rabbi Meir. And says, yes, the Mishnah has split authorship. The original part of the Mishnah, the first half of the mission is not like Rabbi Meir. And the second half of Mishnah is like Rabbi Meir. That Yosef Rabbi, the whole Mishnah is authored by Rabbi. Again, this is subject to Machloket about exactly what Rabbi did in terms of being Mesader, the Mishnayot. Did Rabbi really, did he write the Mishnahot, or did he just bring them together? Had, what did he do? Or he just gave attribution to the Mishnayot? So what we're suggesting over here is that Rabbi liked these two opinions. He was not like the opinion of Rabbi Meir in regards to the ratio, the difference between a Kohen Mashiach, the Kohen Merubeh Megadim. But with regards to a Kohen Shemesh, the Kohen Shavar, there he did agree with Rabbi Meir. So Rabbi wrote the Mishnah based on his opinion. In one place he agreed with Rabbi Meir, in one place he didn't agree with Rabbi Meir. So it's not two different Tanaim or two different authors in the Mishnah. It's a single author who is Rabbi, but Rabbi is picking which one he thinks is right in terms of aloha. And so one case it's going against Rabbi Meir, in one case it's going with Rabbi Meir. And so that makes it a single authorship, but he's taking the positions that he chooses to be the ones that he thinks are Lalocha. Right now the next Mishnah Ein ben ba'makdola u'bama'ktana el apsachim. There's no difference between a ba'makdola and a ba'mak'tana except for p'sachim. Now, the difference in a ba'makdola and a ba'mak'tana, there are certain time periods in which bamot are mutarot. That people are allowed to use private mizbechot. They do not have to go to the Mishkan, they do not have to go to Yerushalayim in order to bring korbanot. We're going to see in the Gemara coming up that get there on tomorrow's daf, that once the Beit HaMikdash is built, right, there is no Heter abamot. That's it. After the Beit HaMikdash is built, you always have to go to Yerushalayim. And even after Yerushalayim is destroyed, you have to go to Yerushalayim. If you can't go to Yerushalayim, you can't have a private mizbeach in your backyard. The question really exists from the time, first of all, when they entered in Eretz Yisrael, that after Mishkan Shiloh is established, again, when Mishkan Shiloh is established, everybody has to go to Mishkan Shiloh, that's the center. But then when Mishkan Shiloh is destroyed, and the Mizbeach, moves to Nov and Givon. When it moves to Nov and Givon, those are known as a Bamagdola. There is no center. The Aron is floating around and ends up in Kirat and Kirat Yarim and then ends up by Oved Edom that they ends up in people's houses and then eventually David brings up to Shalim. The Mizbeh floats around in the Areh Kohanim in Nov and Givon and eventually Shlomo Amalek brings it up to the Migdash. When he consecrates the Migdash, he brings up that Mizbeh. So that mizbech that's found in Novin a period of time when people could make their own korbanot in their backyards. They could have a Mizbeach in their backyard because the bamot, which are these independent Mizbechot, not places of central worship, they can be done anywhere with mutar between the time of destruction of Shiloh and the building of Yushalayim. During that period of time, they have Yavhetra Bamot, there are two different types of Mizbechot. There's a Mizbeach that you put up in your backyard, and there's a Mizbeach, a central Mizbeach, like Novingivon, which is Mizbeach from the Mishkan, that was a central location, even though it didn't have the status of the Mishkan, it was still considered to be a central bama on which the Avodah or the korbanot at Sibor were brought. So what the Mishnah says is ain bayin the The only difference about what can be brought on b'mag tana than what can be brought on a b'mag dola is the at pesach. Zakla, here is the general principle to follow: dervini, Anything that can be brought as a neder nidva, as a voluntary offering. Karevu Bama. That you can put onto a Bama. Anything that cannot be brought as a voluntary offering cannot be put on the Bama. The Gemara now asks on our Mishnah, Psachim is it true that the only thing you can bring on a Bama Gdola is a Pesach and nothing else? The Gemara says, no, 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 no. Psachim is just an example of a type of Korban that's brought on the Bama Gdola. Anything similar to a Pesach can be brought on the Bama Gdola. And we'll see what it is. Mani. Who is the author of this Mishnah? Rabbi Shimoni. It's authored by Rabbi Shimon, the Tanya. Rabbi Shimon Omer. The things that are allowed to be brought on the Ba are Psachim and similar things that are similar to a Pesach. What's unique about a Pesach? It's a Korban, chova. It's an obligatory Korban that has a fixed time in which it must be brought. It's Kavu'l Zman. So what's allowed to be brought on a Ba is any Korban that is a chova is an obligatory offering, that's kavu zman, that has a fixed time in which it's brought, So the korban tamid, the korban musaf, all of those korbanot, which are, chovot at zibor, plus they have fixed times in which they're brought, all of those are brought on a bama gedolah, so just like a Pesach has those traits, and is brought on bama d'olah, so too all these korbanot are brought on the bama d'olah, and that is Rabbi Shimon's opinion over here, that they brought all of these items on the mizbech, in kavu and does not it, a fixed time. It's not brought not on a bamaqdullah and not on a Bamaktana. So uh, examples of things that don't have a fixed time or korbanot like a korban Parhabam mitzvot avodazara. Certain korbanot that come for the sins or for the tzeva as a whole, but they're not obligatory korbanot that come at a fixed time. They're korbanot that come because they're triggered by something else, like a sin or like a mistake. Those items cannot be brought on a Bama dola And Rabbi Shimon will be the author of our Mishnah that Bama dola only permits Chovot, that Kavu Lehem And then, of course, in the nether and dava, something that's in nether and a dava can be brought on a Bama. Again, this sugi is much more extensive in the Gemara and Zvachim. Again, here we have another Gemara that's found in the Gemara and Zvachim. We'll just read the Mishnah now and we'll continue with the Gemara tomorrow, which is Ein Ben Shiloh There's no difference between Shiloh Mishkan Shilo and Jerusalem when the Mikdash is in Jerusalem. Ella. With regards to certain laws in Jerusalem, we know that Kodshim Kalim in Jerusalem can be eaten. The Korbanot Kodshim Kalim can be eaten in the Azarah as well as anywhere inside the walls of Jerusalem. Maisos must be brought up to Jerusalem and eaten within the walls of Jerusalem. So that's great when you have Jerusalem and you have walls around the city. Then you know where you can eat your Maisos You know where you can eat your Kodshim Kalim. Now then Mishkan Shiloh is a location that is quasi permanent. It has a structure that's put around the Mishkan from the Midbar, but there are no walls around it. If there are no walls around it, where can you eat your Kochim Kalim and where can you eat your Maisho Sheini? So that's what the Mishnah tells us here. That by your whatever was inside the walls and eaten because it was Kochim Kalim and had to be eaten inside the walls of Sheini, by Mishkan Shiloh has a rule, Bukholoa. As long as you can see the Mishkan, you can eat it. So that's important because with regards to the excavations to find Mishkan Shiloh, so they think today they found the location of where the Mishkan was. If you go to visit in Shiloh, the settlement of Shiloh, you can, they'll show you where they think they excavated out and they think where the Mishkan sat. Now why that's important is because they went and they looked around the mountaintops around the area that can see that area where the Mishkan is situated. So first of all, it's not on the highest point, the Mishkan. There are mountains around it that are higher. Obviously, that's helpful because then the people can sit on those mountaintops and see the Mishkan, which gave them locations in which to eat. they Koshim Kalim and their Maiser Sheni. But more importantly, when they looked on those mountaintops, they found a tremendous amount of shards of pottery. Lots and lots of shards of pottery. The reason being that when you eat from the Korbanot in clay Cheres, in pottery utensils, the requirement afterwards is that the flavor of the korban is absorbed into the kli And kli cannot be kashered. And therefore, whatever flavor is found inside of the kli-cheres becomes an tar. And the only thing that you can do is lishboradzeh. That's what the Torah tells us. You have to break the kli So that's exactly what's happening. People are eating their korbanot in the kli breaking them and leaving those shards on those places or those locations where they could see the mishkan. So every location around that area where you can see the mishkan from, has tons and tons of shards of pottery on it. And that's one of the pieces of evidence that they use to locate the modern location where they think that Mishkan Shiloh had sat. So that was again based on this. Amen shiloim shilohim kochim kalim as a shinim lifiminachuma vakan vakan. In both locations, Koshim Kadashim Nachlim Lifnim Aklaim, Dushat Shiloh Yesh Akara Heter, K Shahim and Akara Heter. So next thing, in terms of Kochim Kadashim, they both have the same rules, which is they can only be eaten inside the walls of the Azerah. So in the Midash, that's inside the azarah, the walls of Azerah. Inside the Mishkan, they also had the walls around the outer side, I meaning as opposed to Midbar, where they had more temporary types of walls around here, they had a more permanent wall around it, but it still designated a place or an area that was known as the Azerah. So in both of them, you can only eat the Kodshim, Kadashim in that location, in the... In, in the holy areas of the Mishkan or the Mikdash, which were classified as the Azara. Now, another difference is with regards to Kshat Shiloh. The Kodesh Shiloh Yesh Achareh Hetter. Once Mishkan Shiloh is destroyed, then there's a Hetter B'amot again. You're allowed to be use these private mizbechot in your backyard. You're allowed to have B'amot in Achareh Hetter. once Yushalayim is established, it becomes the permanent central location. You're no longer allowed to bring private mizbichot, have private worship, all worship will center in Yerushalayim. There are no other alternatives. Now, obviously, this Mishnah holds that the Kedushah of Yerushalayim, which is Kedushah Rishonah, was permanent. We'll see in the Gemara, and that's what we'll discuss in tomorrow's da, is, is there opinion, are there opinions that disagree? And is that true? That the Kedushah of Yerushalayim is permanent, and therefore, you can't have Bamot afterwards? Obviously, depending on the answer, well, determine who is the author of our Mishnah as well as to the dissenting opinions have impact on the way that we view Yerushalayim today. What's the status of Yerushalayim today? And there are Rishonim, hopefully we'll get to discuss it a little bit tomorrow, that say, for instance, that one is allowed to ascend the Makoma Migdash today and go up and visit on Harabayit because there's no kedusha Once Yerushalayim or once the Mikdash was destroyed, there is no kedusha. So based on that opinion, you would be allowed to ascend to Harabayit today. According to the other opinions who say that the kedusha of Yerushalayim is permanent, it makes it much harder in terms of going up to Har Abayit or going up to the mekomot that the Mikdash once occupied. Again, we'll leave that for tomorrow's discussion, which is that major makhloket about the Kedushah of Yerushalayim, kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, and its permanence once it came into effect. Okay, we're going to stop over here.